Welcome to the Living Undeterred podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Johnston, and I run the Living Undeterred project, I call it. We have a website by the same name. I host a weekly blog and a weekly podcast, which today, my special guest, and I feel like I've known her a long time, but I've only known her for about 90 days, if that. Um, but we have so much in common, but we also have so uh, such a, a different, unique story. And uh, Nancy Barrows is our guest today, and I am honored to uh, not just have um, befriended her on social media, but have the opportunity to actually have a lot of conversations um, on and off the record, uh, trying to help each other both grow and learn and navigate through this crazy thing called life, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. So Nancy, why don't you just, uh, I was looking at some stuff I saw on social media about you and it just says, uh, Nancy, amazing human. So is that the title? Is that, is that your new title that you go by now? Um, maybe um, tell everybody a little bit about you. Uh, that was a, a, a given to title. I think it was, uh, Karina Dorothy Krell who gave me that one. Um, it's humbling by, by all means. Um, it's amazing to have how you're seen reflected back to you. And if that's how you're seen, wow, this kind of takes your breath away. Um, a little bit about me. Well, I am Nancy and, uh, by day I am actually a speech language pathologist and, um, what I do during the day versus where I'm at and what I'm doing on social media are very different things. Um, although three months ago, those two worlds, um, began to meet one another and become integrated. So I had never in my professional life shared about, you know, my story and then coming onto LinkedIn, you know, sort of the, the way it went was I, my best friend Raquel Boris has told me for years that I need to be on LinkedIn. And I am one of those people was one of those people who thought, Oh, LinkedIn, I don't need a job. I don't, I'm not going on LinkedIn. Um, and then she forced me. She forced me by putting a post out there saying that her best friend was new to LinkedIn because she knew I had an old profile. Um, and please friend connect her and welcome her. And that just started, you know, this amazing avalanche of um, just brilliant and wise and forthcoming, honest, genuine, caring humans into my community infused that into my community and i haven't looked back since because it was such a a different experience than i've had in my you know immediate world with the people i reached there and mm -hmm. so uh, i will give your audience the warning because i think it's fair yeah that this may trigger some of them and it certainly will make most of them uncomfortable when we talk about my story um and that's okay receive it however you need to receive it I'm not insulted if you're disgusted. I'm not insulted if you're anxious. I'm not insulted if you're curious. I've had all of those feelings myself. Mm -hmm. So please feel free to process it um, however feels right to you. So now I feel like I can jump in. Yeah. I was sexually abused by my grandfather until I was 16 years old. And at 16, what happened was a mandated reporter entered it into the system. So the secret that I had carefully guarded, um, as if my life depended on it because it felt like it did was now fully exposed and unleashed. And that's the word I use to this day, unleashed on my family, because up until then my 16 year old brain thought, well, I was the only one getting hurt before. And now look what I have done. Everybody I love is hurting. Right. Um, and that's something that took time to realize wasn't, wasn't my doing and that, 
my people around me were being hurt anyway because of how I participated in the world because this trauma was occurring, um, you know, repeatedly over time. Almost immediately, I began being a very restrictive eater, which quickly um, blossomed into full-blown anorexia and I was anorexic for years and you know at the time I don't think I could have articulated that what it was about but it's clear to me now after doing the work that first of all I had lost all control my life had been based on me having control of the narrative me having control of who knew which was no one um, me showing up as if everything was fine I'm an Oscar worthy actress um, and I lived my life for so that I was remarkable enough to be unremarkable you know, not, 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 you don't need to look at me twice. You know, I'm, I'm academically doing well. I was thriving socially. There's no, well, she's great. Don't, don't worry about her. She's not one of the kids that we have to, we have to worry about. Um, and I will say that was the young, when I was younger, that showed up a little differently. Um, uh-huh. And we can talk about that. But yeah, I was anorexic for years. I wanted control back. I wanted that control back. Um, I hated my body and, and uh-huh. I hated it for betraying me because my body Every cell in my body was built to do exactly what it did. It was a beautifully um, programmed system that worked flawlessly. Sexual touch, pleasure. Mm-hmm. The problem mm-hmm. was I didn't want it. Right. I didn't want it. I didn't want it to do that. I didn't want it to feel good. I didn't understand it when I was very young either. And so those messages got all bunched together and tangled up in a place that just made me hate my body for doing what it did. Um, and then finally, I wanted to disappear. I am grateful that I never uh, experienced true suicidal ideation. And I know that right. is I mean, something we can talk about because you've mm-hmm. been through a trauma that includes, you know, suicide. But thankfully, that wasn't where my brain went. Where my brain mm-hmm. went was if someone's going to get a terminal diagnosis tomorrow, you know, I'd go to bed at night and be like, okay, if someone's going to get diagnosed with cancer and it's terminal, give it to me. Right. Let that person who is loving life and has everything to live for, let them, let them continue. I'll, I'll take that kind of thing. And I think part of what saved me in terms of never considering um, with any detail or intent taking my own life was my empathy for the people around me. And somehow that remained front and center for me that I, while I thought I was hurting them now, if I were to, you know, take my own life, and die by suicide, it would be so much worse for them. Mm-hmm. And so I, I guess my nature is, well, I rather suffer than make people around me suffer. So that, that was a blessing in disguise. Um, when I was 20 years old, I confronted my grandfather mm-hmm. and wow. yeah, it was, it's, this is a whole story in of itself, but essentially, um, this was the precipitating event to my first major depressive episode, which there have been many of. Um, I'm very honest about the fact that to this day, depression is one of the things that I still have in my life on you know a regular basis. I'm not saying every day I'm depressed, but this is something that is you know is with me still. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went to confront my grandfather, and ultimately, what happened was he admitted to one thing um, that I didn't remember. I had no memory mm-hmm. of, and that was just shocking. Yeah, it was it was shocking and it ripped my guts out. Because now you're thinking, what else don't I remember, right? right. What else don't I know? How much is there? Right. Do I need to know it all to heal? Can I handle knowing it all? Am I going to be able to know it all, remember it all, right? It just became this, in my head, this black hole that kept sucking all of my... Um, 
energy out of and certainly all of my hope and positivity out of um, me. And the second thing was, is that I had been told, right? And I had gotten to a place of accepting that this wasn't my fault. Although for a long time, I thought it was. I thought I was mm-hmm. just as guilty as he was. I was just right. as much to blame that I had participated, that this was years and years and years worth of abuse. So at right. some point, you know, people are like, well, did you ever say no or tell anyone? I never even considered doing it. It, it, mm-hmm. it. And I don't know why, if it didn't feel safe or what it was, but I think part of it was I felt I was at fault too. So here I have someone taking responsibility, right? Even though it's one instance, he's taking responsibility. And right. guess what? Not a thing changed. And I right. was angry. And I was, gosh, I was so low at the fact that I still have all of the crap that came with the abuse, all the maladaptive behaviors, all of the issues that I was struggling with were still mine, even though it wasn't my fault. It wasn't my responsibility. I didn't get to hand this over, you know, and say, Hey, yes, not my fault. You take this. I still had this massive ankle around my weight that I was dragging around all the time in, in the way of, you know, the effects of trauma for me. And so that was, like I said, that, was the precipitating event to my first major depressive episode. And I, I had to drop out of school. I was in college at the time and it's taken me years to say that I dropped out, not left. I dropped out. Mm-hmm. I dropped out right. because I, I couldn't be trusted on my own, you know, or, or able to take care of myself in the ways that I was going to need to. And so I did come home. I came home and I'm very lucky because my family has never once doubted me, has never once questioned, you know, what I need or how I'm doing it. Um, they've been incredibly supportive financially. They were able to pay for me to go to therapy and they supported the therapeutic process. So I'm forever, ever, ever grateful to, um, my parents because they were also going through their own journey while watching their daughter suffer. And I can't imagine the strength and resilience that that had to take, um, for them to do. And so there's just an immense amount of appreciation and gratitude and awe for, for who they are and how they did it. But years and years and years of work, right? We, we can fast forward a little bit, you know, there's a lot more in between. And, and I think, you know, probably having seen me talk a bit more, you've heard more pieces of the story about my divorce and, you know, how mm-hmm. that was a slow recreation of comfortable discomfort for me and falling back into old patterns after years and years of, you know, doing the work and you go, oh, I have that oh. I have that phrase written down here and you 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 stole my thunder there. But oh, sorry. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, I've heard you every single time you've spoken, I've heard you use comfortable discomfort. And I have it written down. I, I'm gonna probably end up at some point writing a blog about that that concept. It's a little bit similar to the vulnerability idea that I have got a little hung up on about becoming personally addicted to becoming vulnerable. I want to um, talk about that too. Sorry. I'm yeah, because I know last night <laughs> when I watched you speak, uh, and, and again, this will this will post shortly, but I watched a, re- a recent presentation you did or a, or a conversation, I like to call them. And um, I think we had talked or you had talked to somebody about that vulnerability idea. And so again, I think, you know, people that know my story that follow my living undeterred mindset podcast, whatever, know that we survived, you know, a a very uh, difficult traumatic event. And that's the loss of a child to a heroin overdose uh, less than four years ago. And, you know, in listening to you talk about uh, people's trauma is so unique to them. 
that there is no template out there. There's just guide rails that we bounce back and forth, navigate through, and you know, meeting you, meeting other people I met on these platforms are just adding more uh, thickness to the guide rails. You know, so we have a little more comfort when we bounce around as we go through each day. But that comfortable discomfort phrase just resonates with me. Can you tell me what you mean by that? And is it any different than what I think you mean by it? Well, I'll tell you what I mean. You tell me if it's different. So um, <laughs> my comfortable discomfort describes our ability to fall back into familiar patterns that because we know them so well, because we've lived in them for so long, are comfortable, right? We can do it, but there's discomfort in leading, living that life. I, I can use my divorce as the example. You know, I fell back into old patterns through mm -hmm. that had existed in my abuse relationship. I had no voice. I, you know, could survive on breadcrumbs. I didn't need anything. Um, you don't need to notice me. I'm going to keep you happy because that keeps the peace. And then if you're happy, no one's looking at me. And I was able to slowly do that over time seamlessly because mm -hmm. I knew it. So the, the comfort of knowing it and being able to do it, that's that part. The comfortable discomfort is when you stay in that for too long, especially if you've done the work or are starting to become aware, it becomes really uncomfortable, right? So you have this comfortable mm -hmm. discomfort. You fall back into this thing that you know and can do easily, but you know it's not right. You know you're not thriving. You know you're not your best self. You can feel that. Um, and that's a place of huge potential growth. But it's also something if we're not mindful of, and I fell into the trap 16 years of marriage and it was not all bad and he is not an awful human by any means. Right. Um, but I allowed myself to fall back into that. And over the course of 16 years, I lost myself um, and finally became aware of what was happening. And that comfortable discomfort was what propelled me forward to make a change. You know, it's also this um, comfortable discomfort about talking about things like sexual abuse and, mm -hmm. and heroin addiction and mm -hmm. suicide and all sorts of other traumas that are happening in the world. Um, we need to get comfortable with the discomfort. So I use the mm -hmm. phrase two ways. So then there's the getting comfortable with the discomfort. So right now I'm sure there's people who are, you know, not, not that they're not loving the conversation because most people are open to it, but in being in it or around it, there's discomfort, right? So mm -hmm. we need to create some comfortable discomfort so that we don't pull up and out of these discussions and keep walking away um, before anything really changes or happens. So can you sit with your discomfort in the most comfortable way you can? And how do we do that? Nobody's ever going to be comfortable with sexual abuse. I mean, I hope right. not, you know, and, and talking about it, um, but we can be comfortable with the discomfort it brings. And, mm -hmm. you know, that, that's how I see it. And my other thing, and I know you've heard me say this before is I'm so frustrated with the fact that we have had the cure for this disease mm -hmm. all along. Yeah. And it lies in that comfortable discomfort, right? So if we were talking about this openly and we were telling our kids and teaching our kids about boundaries and their bodies, and if it does not feel good to you, that's all that matter. It doesn't, doesn't matter if it would feel good to me or not. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter who it is that's making you feel uncomfortable and giving them absolute permission to own that and, and share it with someone. And on the other side of, as adults, we were creating a safe space that we were honoring and following through on what we, we say we will do in terms of that. If you're having that conversation, that we have a place of receiving without, um, judgment, without mm -hmm. uh, right. trying to fix it with 
in a place where you can reassure the person that they're loved and that the fact that they've shared this piece of themselves with you doesn't change anything. Cause that was a big thing for me when I would tell, I was always worried that people would look at me differently or not love me anymore, or whatever judgment came in my younger self. But if we were doing all that, there would be no safe haven for someone who was a perpetrator. Mm-hmm. Because if they knew kids would talk and knew adults would receive, there's no safe place. There's no nowhere to go. So, you know, comfortable discomfort has quite a few meanings to me. And I don't know if any of those matched with what you were thinking. And if not, I'd love to hear yours because <laughs> I think everybody's interpretation, you know, is, is, is they go to what aligns with them. Right. And we, we always revert back to survival instincts and coping mechanisms. We learned as, as, as a youngster, um, fight and flee or, uh, adapt those type of things. Um, I wrote it down something that I think um, I would like to see more people talk about because I see a lot of people that make comments on post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. And, you know, most people think of the the veteran coming back from a, a war. He's he's seen things that are just traumatic and, and he, you know, can't, can't find a way to, to live. But post-traumatic stress disorder could be sexual abuse. It could be losing a child to a heroin overdose laced with fentanyl. It could be anything. Uh, There's a spectrum, I guess, of of trauma out there. No no different than autism or ADD or any other thing. There's always a spectrum. So in my research for my book, uh, this one's for you, An Inspirational Journey Through Addiction, Death, and Meaning, I came across this idea called post-traumatic growth. And I'd never heard it before. And it's about three pages in my book I wrote about. And I think you are a living example of post-traumatic growth. And again, I am just because of what I think I'm doing with my living undeterred projects I'm on is that I've taken this traumatic event that for some people, not most, not all, but for some, it may have been the end. It may have been suicide. It may have been alcoholism, could have been drug abuse, could have been whatever. Uh, no different than you. You had something horrendous happen. And I guarantee you there's people watching that have had somebody that they know has either died or is addicted or has dealt with someone with sexual abuse. I mean, you and I probably covering 90% of everyone watching this show. So most people, they don't think they know someone who's been through it. They do. Guarantee you, you do. Unfortunately, once you start talking and you become vulnerable, then the floodgates open. But going back to post-traumatic growth, had you ever heard of that phrase? And do do you do you think that that? um, I guess if you haven't heard about it, you wouldn't be able to comment on it. Um, Had you ever heard of that phrase? And and, uh, I had until just now, and of course, you know, I can still comment on it Um, because just I'm I'm a talker and I have I share my (laughs) thoughts pretty freely. I, I I love the empowerment. You know, post-traumatic stress disorder. Right there, we've got a disorder. Right, exactly. Um, yep. There's a connotation there. There's a there's a words to me are very important um, to me. No word is void. They all carry weight and they all mean something. So I'm very big about you know trying to be careful about my words and notice the words I use and um, reframe things. And so yeah, when you can take it from a place of disorder to a place of growth, it's empowering. And I think it also gives you the sense or gives me the sense that I have some control over it. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, I can, I can grow, I can change, I can, I can participate in that process. And, you know, for me, I say all the time, I am so, I don't know what 
or how or why I, I, I can tell you, yes, I was tenacious and I had resilience and all of that, but I don't know where that came from, where that little girl, four or five year old, she had that well beyond her years. Um, right, and she, right. she survived, she did everything she could, um, to get me to a point where I could heal. And there were times going through it that I really, I, I couldn't connect to her and I didn't like her very much, but that was my, you know, 40 year old brain judging a five year old as opposed to thinking about a five-year-old and what they would have to do to survive that. And right. so part of what for me happened and what went from surviving to thriving in this post-traumatic growth process was really learning um, to have gratitude for it all, mm-hmm. for every crappy moment, for every snotty day, for every unshowered day, um, that, that was part of this, you know, to have complete gratitude for it. And especially for that little one through over the years, just, man, is she a fierce warrior that got me to a place of being able to heal. And when I had gratitude for it, I switched from survivor to thriver. And that was huge for me. And I think it's, um, it's one of the things that propels me to tell my story, to let people know, like, there's more than just surviving and there are ways to get to thriving and the value of my story. Yes. I'm here and I can do this and I can share my story and that's valuable. But I think for most people, um, the ugly in between is really where the value comes from. Because if, if, if I saw me, right, as I am today, when I was going through my journey, I would have hated me like, Oh, look, she's got her crap together and she's so happy. And you know, look at her, she's successful and she's doing her thing. And but right, I couldn't relate to me at all when I was in the process. But if someone like me shows up and says, yeah, you know what? I have uh, laid on the bathroom floor and cried myself to sleep. I have gone without showering for three days. Mm -hmm. I've lied to people and said I have plans when I'm doing absolutely nothing because I don't want to deal with people. You know, those places of being stuck and feeling like I was in that dark hole again that was deeper this time and I was going to climb out of it for what reason? So I could be back here again, that that cycle. I had all of that and more. I mean, there's so much more. But for one person to understand, even what I talk about every cell in my body doing what it was meant to do, I am sure there are other people out there, men and women, who felt the way I did, that their body betrayed them, right? Right. That it was this, this... complete and utter betrayal um, of ourselves. And maybe they're ashamed. I was, I was ashamed that at some points my abuse was pleasurable. And I know that's really uncomfortable for people Mm -hmm. to hear, right? You want to think of it being not, sounds wrong. Give me a minute to talk it out. You want to think of it being an awful experience, right? Right. You know, not because you want me to have suffered, but that, that works how our brains like it to. To, mm-hmm. to hear that there was pleasure involved um, is really unsettling for a lot of people. But mm-hmm. there's someone out there that me saying that, they just exhaled for the first time in a long time. Yeah, long, and long you said the needle, so- the needle hasn't moved forever on sexual abuse. And so yeah. you, you are moving the needle. Um, and uh, I, think, uh, I think by you keep continuing this story, um, some, somebody, boy or girl, is going to walk down the hallway to their parents or their counselor or their teacher and say, Hey, I need to talk to you. And as parents, we need to be open-minded on these things. Something I thought of when you were talking, and it's a phrase that I've used a lot in my writing and just kind of my philosophy is, is something to the effect that 
ultimately to achieve true peace in your life, you need to be as far from peace as you can. You need moments as far from peace as you can. And so you talk about this black hole pulling you in. Well, maybe sometimes you need to have that so you really can understand what true peace really is because you're really as far as away from peace as you can be. And I, I was on my floor in, in my kitchen, you know, three months into my book, three in the morning, you know, couldn't breathe, cried every tear that I possibly could. And, um, almost not just didn't finish the book, but almost just didn't finish living. And, um, I have no idea what happened. I just, and I'm not a religious person, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to, um, you know, subscribe it to divine intervention because that would be a cop, a cop out for Jeff Johnston. Maybe some people that's explains everything. But for me, I, I guess I wasn't going to use that as, as, a reason why I decided to, to start, not, not finish, but just start living. And, you know, I, I'm kind of stuck on that phrase, you know, to get to true peace, I have to get to the worst places possible. And, I, and I've been there and I know you've been there too. And, uh, it's, um, it's difficult to explain to people because I've never had thoughts of suicidal ideation as well, but I have had thoughts of suicide. I guess there's a difference. I, I, I tell people too, that I'm, I've never been depressed, but I have depressive moments. So for me, it's the same way that I've kind of tricked my brain to not say I have depression because then I have a label. If I say I allow myself to have depressive moments, well, I can have my depression, but not be depressed. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. And, and I'm a big believer in words, so I definitely feel how that shifts things. Um, and we, we've talked about labels. I have cat hair stuck to me. I'm so sorry. Um, That's okay. I have a cat too. Um, this is part of my life here. Um, <laughs> I talk about showing up genuinely and authentically. Welcome to my world. Yeah. Um, that labels can be helpful. They can help people understand things. They can help right. us attack things from a more comprehensive view of it. So even like PTSD, all the different symptoms of PTSD, if we try to address all of those separately, we're going to be right. far less successful than if we know that these are all part of the same thing, right? But mm -hmm. PTSD spoken of as post-traumatic growth, and it ha encompasses all of these types of issues, symptoms, beliefs, experiences. Well, that's a, that's a huge difference. Um, you know, it helps us to understand that they all go together, but that, you know, that label doesn't make me feel broken. And I spent mm -hmm. a lot of my life feeling broken by unrepair. And you're right. And that deep, dark hole is where my growth happens. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, the, the growth is in the struggle. And I work in the public school system and I say this all the time because, you know, we want to save kids. I don't want them to suffer, but learning that you can struggle through it and find your way. Yeah. Um, is a huge moment of growth, right? So yep, we don't want to take agree. that away from anyone. It doesn't always feel good. And my moments of growth are not always at the bottom of the deep, dark pit, but right, many right. of them have come from there. But all of them have come from the struggle. All of them have come from the discomfort and the struggle and the, the place of um, of hurt is the word that keeps coming to mind, a place of hurt, of hurting, having pain. Been, pain. Yeah, yeah, being in pain. Um, and, you know, the mental wellness journey 
and I joke, is not this thing where you get there and you graduate and someone gives you a plaque and you hand it on, the, you hang it on the wall, right? It's, yeah. it's, it sounds really lovely that way that I, I've done all my work and I'm good. I've done all my work. I am good, but right. I will remain human for the rest of my life. I will remain human about, for the rest of my life. Yeah, yeah, we both, uh, we both are, are stuck there, I guess, in a good way, but talking about labels, um, I, I detest labels as well. However, if we're going to have them, might as well have good ones. You know, yeah, might, right. might as well have the good labels. So I, um, my sons and I, Roman and Ian, uh, my other two boys, uh, we speak at the high school here every year to students, typically eighth grade, ninth grade kids, right around the age of first use, which in the United States is 14. And I always start wow, my presentation. Wait, let that sink in for a second, right? Yeah, it's just insane. And parents just don't realize And you and I could go off on that tangent for an hour. And that's, that's kind of what got me into this realm of living undeterred was was the addiction and the substance abuse arena. But then I meet people like you and there's there's all other things out there. But hold what you're going to say for a second, because I want to cover this thing on, on the word addiction. I start off my class often by saying, okay, who can name who can name addictions? And inevitably, these kids, and they fall into my trap. They all say alcohol, you know, maybe they'll bring up sexual abuse if they have the courage to use that word. Um, they'll say, uh, you know, stealing, lying, pot, vaping. And I'll say, yeah, those are all addictions, but how about telling the truth? How about eating healthy? How about working out? How about avoiding toxic relationships? How about reading? How about writing? Um, you know, those are addictions too. And they're like, yeah, but those are positive addictions. So I'm not out here, you know, telling people to avoid all addictions. I actually love addictions. And I, I take some heat when I post this on social media because I don't think people understand. I'm, I'm being a little bit sarcastic when I say that. Obviously, my son was an addict. He died from heroin. So if there's anybody that hates addictions, it's Jeff Johnston. But I'm also not naive. I also understand that part of my learning journey is to start using these words that would be so easy for me to be my unwinding, but use them as my inspiration. And so I love addictions. I do. I, I, I'm addicted to my podcast. I'm addicted, addicted to meeting people like you. I'm addicted to, uh, writing about, uh, whatever I can think about. I have ADD, so it's easy for me to write. I have, I think you have ADD too. Yeah. So I have no problem creating content. And I think that's, what's going to propel you, Nancy, to a you're going at the speed of light with this thing. And I'm just happy to kind of be holding on for the ride. <laughs> I watch your, I watch the velocity of your story on social media. And it's like, man, I, I know her when she was, you know, it'll be one of those stories, but anyway, I, I don't know why I got off on that, but I think it's important for us as we start uh, uh, navigating through the label aspect. You know, I go back to Adderall. My son was labeled ADD, given Adderall, and that was the open to the door of his addiction issue was Adderall. So if I got somebody out there that they're bipolar or they've, or they've, um, something's happened to them or somebody's labeled them and they're now start thinking, well, I got to go get drunk or I got to go kill myself or cut myself or whatever. Um, I guess I feel compelled to step in and start trying to teach kids to make better choices. That's what it comes down to. Not telling them what not to do, just telling them that choices have consequences, right? Right. Yeah, there's outcomes, right? And consequences also sounds like a negative word. You know, I always say I feel obligated and compelled. Obligated is not a bad word in this sense. I feel obligated mm -hmm. to tell my story. I was mm -hmm. given 
the gift of thriving. I was given the gift of getting through it. I was given the gift of the family I have. And so, yeah, I do feel obligated, but not in a bad way at all. You know, you talk about addictions and I, I usually just use maladaptive behaviors and, and, you know, adaptive behaviors. So we can talk about it however we want, but it doesn't mean there's only bad. I totally get what you're saying about addiction. Like, can I be addicted to positivity and gratitude? Yeah, I am. Those are my, you know, pro-adaptive behaviors that I have taken on in place of my maladaptive behaviors. Mm -hmm. And um, just to let you know, hold on tight, because I intend to be the woman known as the woman who changed the narrative on sexual abuse. So um, I would love to have you with me that entire journey along with me. Um, you know, I've gotten to a point where I'm no longer outrunning my past. I'm actually mm -hmm. grateful to bring it along with me. Um, right. And yeah, hold on tight, because I would love for you to be with me the whole way um, because I am on my way to being the woman who changed the narrative on sexual abuse. And, you know, I appreciate uh, being you reflecting back to me the way I'm seen and, and how my journey looks from the outside. Cause it's very hard when you're in it um, mm -hmm. and it feels so purposeful and you're on the right path. Um, I want to say it's a labor of love, but it just is, it's, it's, it's what I'm driven to do. It's, it's, it's what feeds me. Um, helping others, telling the story, telling the story over and over. And there are so many pieces of it that I haven't even gotten into yet. You know, there's right. a whole story around the confrontation. There's a whole story about all sorts of things. Um, but my job is to keep talking. My job is to keep talking. My job is to talk about, yes, there are things that come out of this that are just really hell in a handbasket and, and sorting through it is going to be very hard roll up your sleeves work. It's not a journey. It's a Spartan run. You know, a journey sounds like there's going right. to be cute little woodland animals and, <laughs> and flowers, you know, like little birds that bring me ribbon. Right. I don't know. Um, but it's a Spartan race and it's okay to stop and rest. Um, what is not okay is to just stop. I understand wanting to stop, but it's, it's, it's again, the word you're allowed to rest. You're allowed to pause. Do you believe things happen for a reason? Absolutely, a thousand percent. Without a doubt. I'm a big, yeah, the universe is conspiring for my best good. Um, I think everything that's happened has happened for a reason. It's happened so that I can be here today talking about this when other people have a really hard time doing so. Um, I believe that I ended up working with kids for a reason. And I worked mm -hmm. in a certain area of Los Angeles where kids really were experiencing trauma on a daily basis. So many different traumas, you know, food insecurity, housing insecurity. There may be abuse in the home. There may just be a lack of personal space with you know, many people living together. You know, the way children are, are, are fed into their souls and love. There's so many, so many, so many traumas. Parents in jail, there are shootings. And I could show up as me having been through trauma in a very different way from someone else who hadn't been. You know, when the behaviors came out, I saw them and I saw them as cries for help. And I saw them as little beings who didn't have a better way. It doesn't feel good to be enraged and crying and screaming and throwing things around your classroom. This right. doesn't feel good. If, if I... my kids had another way, they would. And my job is, hey, let me offer you another way. I see that you're hurting. I see this is a big feeling. You are important to me and I want to help you, right? Let's, like you said, see, see that there are choices, see that there are, are, are skills you can learn. Um, and I think I went way off from the question that you asked me. No, no, no. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if I asked a question, okay. um, but you used the word gratitude every single time I've heard you speak, which has been now, I think into the hundreds now, but, um, but you use the word gratitude and I will tell you, I, I know you meditate, right? I do. 
Okay, so I do as well. Um, I use um, mindfulness meditation, which is kind of a popular one. Uh, but I, in, in my meditation practice, uh, I've kind of revisited a philosophy that I got kind of introduced to back in college called Stoicism and the Stoic philosophers. And um, Marcus Aurelius and, and Senecas and some of these uh, individuals kind of had these mindsets that they developed to help them deal with, you know, life, um, adversity, grief, trauma, etc. But they, they practice something called negative visualization. And it's the concept of when you, when you see somebody or you think of, or you, let's give an example is you're tucking in your child to go to bed at night mm -hmm. and you for a moment pause that this may be the last moment you ever see them again. It could be a fire. Their heart could just stop. Um, and many things could happen. Carbon monoxide poisoning. It's not thinking negative. It's actually thinking positively. It's called, it's called negative visualization, but you're vis you, you're taking a, a mindset of gratitude that, Hey, they're not, not here. They're here right now. I have to be grateful for that. And I think back to my life specifically when, when Seth died and, you know, I write in my book about the last moment that I had with my son and he had gotten, he'd been in prison for something that I won't, uh, spend time with, but he had spent time in prison and he got out of prison and he kind of expected to move back in our house. And I had two other boys and at the time I was married and I thought, well, this isn't a good environment to have him come back in. So he's in our garage. He's upset with us because we told him that we, he couldn't come back in. And as he got his boxes and was with his friends, I just turned around and said, Seth, you need to quit drinking. And that's the last thing I ever said to my son. I never got to tell him I love him. And uh, I will forever use that moment to remind me that I will never let people get away from me without telling them I love them. And every freaking moment of every freaking day, I tell my boys I love them obsessively. And, you know, I don't do it enough with my parents. I don't do it enough with my brothers. Um, and, uh, boy, if that's not a life lesson, you know, I... I would just love to have the opportunity to tell him. I'm sorry. Please don't apologize. But I guess the reason I tell this story is that as much as that sucks to have to go back and live in that moment, it's made me such a better human being. It's made me such a better man. It's made me such a better dad. I mean, it's going to make me a great ex-husband, um, a great business owner. Uh, and Seth knows I love him. That's the thing. Um, but anyway. That was one of the things that came to mind while you were talking is, yes, we take every opportunity. You feel like maybe you don't tell the people in your life that you love them enough. But I am certain, Jeff, from knowing you, um, that you are constantly showing them. You're communicating it to them. And it's not the same necessarily. And, and you know, for us, saying it out loud is pretty powerful. But so are our actions. Um, and I come from a family. I'm so, so lucky. I come from a family where you can't leave to go to the grocery store without kissing everyone and hugging them and telling them you love them before you get in the car. You know, right. every time you go somewhere, every time you do something, you know, like, oh, I'll be right back. Well, okay, fine. I'll be right back. I love you. I'll see you in a minute. I'll be right back. Hug, kiss, goodbye out the door. Um, and for some people that would be totally overwhelming. I, I get it. Um, for me, I take great comfort in it. 
I'm grateful for every moment I have. And I can definitely see the negative. I'm not, okay, living in a place of gratitude does not mean that I'm always happy. Living in a place right. of gratitude does not mean that I Pollyanna all the negativity away and I don't see it and it, it doesn't exist. It means that within all of that, with it being imperfect, with it being painful, with there being things going on that are negative and difficult and hard to stomach, I can continue to turn to a place where I'm grateful for what is and what is good and what is coming. And I've learned, right, that the struggle means something good. I've learned that I can remain grateful even when I'm feeling like there's not a whole lot good going on. Even if it's just to be grateful that I'm aware, I feel I'm in this moment and I'm given an opportunity to make it to the next moment, which may be very different. And life is yeah. comprised of moments, tons and tons and tons of moments. Um, and so for me, yeah, that's, I think that's really important when people are like, oh, yeah, no, I'm not always happy. And no, I'm not always chipper and positive right. and I uh -huh. bitch and complain. Right. Um, and I allow myself that, but then I come back to what's more true and more helpful are the things that I'm so blessed to have and receive and people in my life and the love and support. And it's not easy every day. It becomes an ingrained habit where you can't stop doing it um, and where you are aware in a, just a, in a very beautiful way of everything as it happens. Um, yes, the negative, but if you're aware of the negative, you also become aware of what's coming out of it. But when I am, can be aware of the beauty that's happening, happening, the synchronicity, the lack of resistance and what is being put in front of me, which is what you've been witnessing, right? Where this whole, you say that I've like skyrocketed on social media or whatever. I don't remember your exact words. I apologize, but, okay. um, that is all my awareness in terms of, I see that. And how cool is it to see it in the moment that this is happening and really appreciate it and really have gratitude for it right then and there. I don't have to understand it. This was one of my, I do affirmations daily and I post them quite frequently. And this was one of mine the other day. Um, I don't have to understand to move forward. Hmm. Well, I use a quote very similar, a willingness to accept not knowing doesn't equate to not searching. So for me, for me, when I say, I don't know if there is X, um, it doesn't mean I'm giving up. It doesn't mean I'm not going to keep looking. And so I think a willingness to say you don't know something is courageous. Um, I, I don't know what, what the answer is for people out there struggling with things. All I can do is tell you what's been the answer for me. And you threw me off with that synchronicity word because I had that written down to talk to you about that. But I had like nine other things I wanted to talk about it. And with ADD, I'm really trying to get better to listen to people because I, I have so many things in this ADD head I want to talk about, I get it. but I wrote down some things from a past talk you did about creating your own safe space. And you mentioned the word sensory diet, and I never heard that word before. And tell me what, see, it's hard for people to understand because this is my safe space. Crying is my safe space. Talking about Seth till I'm just out of tears is my safe space. It sounds perverse. It's almost like I'm self-torturing myself, but I need it. It's like that. that's what keeps me going. And, and safe space to me isn't a little box where I'm in hiding from the world and I don't want to talk about things. That's a prison. That's not a safe space. And I don't want to live in a prison. 
you know? Yeah, safe space isn't a place where nothing bad happens, right? That's not necessarily a safe space. Um, I'm going to quote Finding Nemo when, um, you know, Marlon says about Nemo, I promised him I would never let anything happen to him. And Dory looks at him and goes, well, then nothing can ever happen. Like nothing good could ever happen. Right. Right? You can't, if you promise nothing's going to happen to him, nothing's going to happen to him, which sounds really great and really protective. Um, But okay, so let me answer the question because I know we we do have a time limit. Um, So sensory diet, and I think this was a conversation on was this connected human conversations? I think could have been, or it could have been back with, um, uh, I wrote it down. Uh, let your mayhem be heard. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's all, it's all there. I know I talked to, Oh, I also talked about, I think on Island of Misfit Toys with Mike Paterano um, and the co-host, but so really this term comes from kids and sensory, um, regulation and lots of time used as a behavior approach to, to, you know, things that are happening with kids when they get dysregulated. And now I'm using all my professional words, but it's like when kids can't manage themselves, right. And, and, and they are seeking something that they're missing. It's a pretty basic concept. Sometimes it's sensory input. We have lots of kids that are hypersensitive and every little thing, the kids that can't have a tag on the back of their shirt, or if there's like noise in the background, they can't study. But we also have kids that, that live in what we call under arousal. They're not getting enough sensory input to feel safe in their world, know where they end and the world begins. Like even like I talk about my nephew used to be like water in a chair. He didn't Mm -hmm. even like understand where he was compared. He just was liquid, right? In the chair, he just everywhere. Um, (laughs) But a sensory diet is, is not something we physically eat. It's not a bunch of foods, but it's feeding your body sensory information. And so for some kids, it's deep pressure, right? And some, for some adults, it is, right? That whole weighted blanket thing that, that became big a couple of years ago, yeah. that's something we use for kids who had sensory deficits, right? To give them additional pressure or pressure into your joints, like doing wall push-ups and stuff like that. That additional information, it's it, it may be things like, you know, I often do this and maybe that's a place where my body is seeking a little bit more sensory input to stay grounded or, you know, stay focused. Um, it came out of a conversation as I was watching Mike Paterano. He did a really yeah. beautifully vulnerable um, video on his YouTube channel. And the whole time he was sort of rubbing his scruff all different ways. Um, and I, I talked to him about it and I said, you know, this may not resonate with you, but I feel like that was your grounding. Like you needed mm-hmm. that sensory input. So when you're leaving your body in these hard moments, right, or, or whatever it is, or we're zoning out, that, that sensory input, that sensory diet can really help us ground and feel safe and anchored and centered. Um, and I'm like you, I don't, my safe space isn't one where nothing bad happens. My safe right. space is where I can be me. My safe space is where there are people around me who love me for me but also want to see me be my best self. So they will be honest with me, um, you know, about the things they see. They won't be aggressive about it, but they'll mm. allow me a moment to try those things on and see how I feel about it. Um, and so, yeah, creating safe space, I think for ourselves is really important. We talk about other people creating safe space for ourselves, for us when we need it, but really creating safe space for yourself is huge. Um, and, and for some people, and this was part of the conversation, it means, you know, pulling back a little bit from social media and not being as available to just say, okay, I need this time for me. And this is what I need to do in this time. Another thing is we use the word self-care, right? What is your self-care? Um, I struggled with this for a really long time because I was trying to figure out what I do as self-care. What do I do for self-care? And the reality is I don't do anything. My self-care is when I do nothing. 
when I don't schedule anything, when instead of stopping to get my nails done, which might be self-care for someone else, I come home, put on my pajamas in my bathroom and I sit on the couch Mm -hmm. and I just let myself be. So all of these things, and I definitely have gone off from what you, you asked, sensory diet, sensory input is really important for most of us. So think of it if if you're an adult and you're in a meeting, Um, I tend to take notes, right? Sensory input. I've got paper, pencil input, the way it feels, my arm moving. If you uncross and cross your legs, if you bounce your leg, you know, you're you're giving yourself, you're, you're unknowingly creating sensory input for yourself. And, And lots of us need that. It's easy to detach. It's easy in the world that we live in to sort of float outside your body. And if you are like me and, and, and have had trauma, one of the big things is dissociation, being outside of your body, not being connected mm-hmm. to your body. You know, I, I will have those days that I'm working so, so busily that I don't recognize that I'm hungry till I stop and think if I'm hungry and then I'm ravenous, but I didn't feel it until then because I wasn't right. connected with my body. And that happens for people in right. all sorts of ways. So yeah, the sensory piece, um, I think we use it a lot about, like I said, children. And if you look up sensory diet, you Google it, it's going to be about kids. But I think we're neglecting a whole population of people well, that are, you know. When you first said that, I thought of the term anchoring in meditation. Because when you're meditating and you, you know, you, you see a thought and you can't, you can't let it go, go back to your breath. You know, to me, to me, that's when I heard you say the word sensory grounding, I immediately, the analogy to me was in meditation. It it gets me back to what I came there to do. And that was to be aware, you know? And so, um, I think for, for kids, I go back to my passion in helping adolescents make better choices. I developed a system called the Don't Start Initiative. And it's something that I woke, I read about in my book. I woke up at five in the morning. I keep a pad of paper by my bed and I just started writing down all this stuff. And I came up with this DCI acronym using the ABC uh, model, awareness, breathing, choose. And so what I wanted to do is talk to kids that you're at the parking lot, football game, you're in seventh grade and somebody comes up with a six pack of beer. Okay, now you're in that position where your whole life, your kids, your parents have been telling you this is going to happen. Mom and dad ain't there. Nancy isn't there. Jeff's not there. Your teacher isn't there. Your guidance counselor's not there. Your brother and sister's It's you and your, and your three friends. So I, I thought, okay, what is a quick way for a kid to work their way through this? Just say no doesn't, doesn't work. Um, it does for some. It doesn't for most. So I came up with the Don't Start Initiative. So the awareness is the first thing. That's the A. So kids can sit there and go, okay, ABC. Jeff said ABC. Awareness. Okay. I'm aware I'm in a situation that I've been told about. Okay. Now I breathe. So I don't answer yes or no. I don't do anything. I just take a deep breath. And I think about a response. Because I have to respond. And in doing so, previous to this, you can set yourself up and you can think of two or three canned responses. Hey, I can't. My parents are coming to pick me up in 30 minutes. Just, I mean, you have them prepared. They're they're lies. They're lies. Yeah, I'm on medication. I'm on a new med for poison ivy. I I can't, you know, just come up with some BS lie to get you out of that situation. And so awareness, breathe, and then choose. And I think if I can get this concept out to kids, it's not just going to be helping them. It's also going to help parents breach that conversation say hey guess what i'm not going to tell you not to vape but i'm going to tell you how to think about it when you're confronted with it and that's how we need to teach kids today i'm not sure where that's going to go into sexual abuse and all that i think i think there's always a 
a way to pull pull one coping strategy from yeah, one area. I mean, I can see it when you feel your boundaries are being crossed. Like, you know, take a breath and 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 stand up for your boundaries. You know, one of the things is, you know, your ABC choose and ultimately we want to get to choose you. Right. Like you don't you don't have to come up with some lie. Just no, I don't I don't do that. No thanks. I'm not interested. Right. Ultimately choose you. And and that's the same thing with sexual abuse. Someone's making you uncomfortable, you take a breath and go, No. It's, this is not okay with me. You know, that cho I'm choosing me. And, and maybe you do have a bunch of phrases that could be totally true. Or yeah. sometimes until we have that skill, right, we need those socially acceptable outs. You know, I right. work in a speech pathologist on social cognition. And so that is based in cognitive behavioral therapy. And it's, I can't teach you every social skill. You know, right. we, like, this is how you introduce yourself. Well, if you're introducing yourself to your boss and you say, sup, right, hey, sup. It's a whole different thing than if you go up to your friends and say, hey, sup, what's going on, right. you know? Right. And if you went to your friends with the boss greeting, right, it all gets weird and icky and it's un it's unexpected and people feel uncomfortable. So right. I work a lot with people being able to be like, okay, I can't tell you everything to say, but I can teach you to read the clues, to understand when people feel uncomfortable, how they start to look, behave, speak, so that you know that, okay, I've done something that's making someone uncomfortable. Let me think of what I can do to change this. Um, and the beauty of what I do is I create connection between people and right. what a privilege, what a privilege to give people community, what a privilege to give people access to deeper connections and relationships and meaningful interactions. Um, and it's similar to what you're saying, right? Can, what are the choices? What do I know about this situation? What do I know about these people? Because maybe each phrase works differently with a different group. Um, who knows, right? But I do think it's, it's, it's a brilliant acronym, acronym, and there's a lot of room for um, learning within, within there. Yeah. I go back to, you know, the moments that I had to make those choices growing up. And fortunately for me, I never did drugs. Uh, with ADD, I came to, I early realized, I think, I think it was when Len Bias died. I'm not sure if you know who Len Bias was, but he yeah, was, of a, course I did. yeah. Uh, best player in the country basketball and this was in the 80s and he was the like the number one or whatever draft pick he was and on a celebration night um he yeah, did coach he for the first game and died and uh and so that kind of like i thought to myself oh shit, you can do coke and die the first time okay maybe i better not do it and yeah, and, sure. it, and and that worked for jeff johnston but for a lot of kids it didn't and obviously for my son it didn't he, he uh those those um stories out there um he was, he was so fearless that at, at the end of the day, he was not afraid of dying because right. you have to know that that's an outcome when you start doing heroin and things like that, that unless you just live on an island, um, that there and is, our brains, there is, our brains are very good at protecting us from what we don't want to right. see, know, you know, kind of thing. So, right. I mean, I, I, one of the byproducts of my abuse and it was very positive and lots of people who have been in my situation, men and women will turn to drugs or become promiscuous because that's the lesson they've been taught about their worth. Um, but my need for control kept me from ever trying anything really. I was not a drinker in high school. I often had the excuse of being the designated driver, um, but I just, yeah, it wasn't for me. And uh, I know there were times where I have gotten, you know, a, a club soda and roses lime juice at a bar just so that nobody kept bothering me and like, Hey, you need a drink. You need a drink. Right. You need a drink. I'm good. I'm good. Right. I'm good. Um, but yeah, the, the, that 
awareness that both of you and I had. I also didn't want to become addicted because I, I did not want to have to become unaddicted. I was unwilling right. to try things that had that potential because of, you know, the potential outcome. Um, but we, we are all different and what works for us is going to be different. And so, like you said, just say no, isn't going to work for everyone. You know, and every group, every social group is different, a different dynamic, something else is going to happen. Um, you know, we're talking about high school, but wait till you get in the work, work world, someone gets promoted and they have a big party, you know, right. you're confronted with all sorts of things in that situation potentially too. Um, you know, but I, uh, ultimately, um, there's two things that I want to make sure we get in before we start, stop, sorry, is, um, you know, you talked about being on medication, maybe for poison ivy or antibiotics that you can't drink with, uh, right. which may, reminded me, um, that I like to share with people that I take medication daily for depression. I haven't okay. always, and I have on and off taken it, but, right. um, I know there are times when the things that work for me, you know, my, my going for a walk, my journaling, my reaching out, and when they're not working, um, I know it's time for me that my brain chemistry needs a boost to get me to a level playing field so that I can be in a place of dealing with whatever it is that's happening and going on and creating these feelings. Um, the other thing that's important for me to mention to people is about meditation. Um, yeah. My meditation story is almost laughable. Um, I've tried meditation a bunch of times before I became a meditator. And my attitude, not my, my conclusion was, I can't do it. I, I, I'm unable to meditate because I had been taught like clear your mind of everything, find a spot that's quiet, no extra stimuli and just clear your, I am ADD. I there is do. no <laughs> clearing this mind. I mean, that is just not going to happen. And for a lot of people, it's just not how their brain works or, you know, what's going on in their life. Maybe it doesn't allow them to clear their right. mind. There are things that they feel they really need to keep at the forefront. Otherwise things are going to happen. Um, right. So for me, what worked is including a mantra. And um, I was taught a class by uh, one of my therapists actually got me hooked up with her mom, who was a meditation teacher and her mom did a free class. And I sort of just sat in the back and, and listened. Um, but she introduced this, this idea of you're not clearing your head. Um, yes, you're coming back to your breath for some people. For me, it's coming back to the mantra and the mantra is on the inhale. It's so, so I'm thinking so, and on my exhale, it's hum the whole time. And it's Sanskrit for I am. Mm -hmm. Now, if I say I am, it's too much information for my brain to catch and start thinking about. Right. So it right. just, mm -hmm. so hum. And um, my meditation practice has a ton of sensory input in it. Mm -hmm. I have a candle that has a strong smell to keep me grounded. I have a rose quartz um, stone or crystal that I keep in my fridge or freezer. And then when I'm ready to meditate, I, I drop it into my bra and it's against my heart chakra. And it's cold, so I really pay attention to it. And over the course of the meditation, it just warms up and disappears. I don't need that grounding anymore. Um, I have meditation music on. I'm telling you, every sense is engaged, and that's how I meditate. Every sense is how engaged. How long do you meditate? So I, don't, I, I stay grounded, and I don't get distracted by all the other sensory stimuli. And I come back to my mantra. And when things come in, um, cats come in, uh, thoughts come in, an itch on my nose comes in, um, you know, I thank my brain. I thank my brain and body for that right. because it, it, it's capable. And I move it along or I say, you know what? Great, thank you for reminding me. Remind me about that later kind of thing. And I am not a first thing in the morning meditator. I, in fact, mm -hmm. I'm not necessarily time of the day meditator. And I know that's a big mm -hmm. part of what we're taught about meditation. Um, I need to get some things done um, first. Right. Uh, and get some things off my plate so that my brain will really let go of those. 
Um, and then I can meditate. And I started with three minutes that felt like an hour, yeah, to five minutes, eight minutes, 12 minutes, too. 15 minutes. Right. And I know I don't normally meditate beyond 15 minutes, um, yeah. or at least that's not my expectation of myself. So I've made it something that I can do. Um, and that fits me when I tried to fit all of those other pieces in the way somebody else's practice looked, I failed every time. Yeah. When the I great thing about meditation, it's, it's whatever you, what narrative you want. I mean, if you're a religious person, meditation could be a, a spiritual religious thing. If you're agnostic, like myself, it's, it's not a, a, a divine communication with, with an entity. Um, one thing I wanted to cover real quick before we wrap up, we're at, we're at an hour, but I think I could keep going for another hour, but you are so busy. I'm sure you've got your day stacked. Um, one thing I thought about that I wanted to throw out there for people that are struggling with these things is uh, I'm a firm believer in something I've kind of uh, invented for myself, and it involves me tricking my brain. I, I, I'm not that smart a human being. I don't, I don't think I'm that highly intelligent. By, by no means am I so intelligent that I'm having communications with, with other things that are telling me how to live my life. So I have to trick my brain. So I go back to my compulsive gambling. I, in my book, I write about my problem in my 20s and 30s when I was a really bad, you know, not that there's a good compulsive gambler, but I was addicted to gambling and, and an alcoholic heavily. And those are not two good combinations when you're in the investment business. Um, so now that I'm kind of semi-retired, I can talk about this, but I've always tricked my brain into one phrase that got me to quit gambling literally overnight. And it's this idea that when you win, you lose. And what I meant by that is, and I heard a friend say that one time, cause we were having problems gambling and, he, and I asked him how he quit. And he said, I just tricked, I told myself that even when I won a bet, I lost. And I thought, man, that's a great way for someone like me that's not that smart to trick my brain. So I, I just, I did that in with drinking. I quit drinking. I said, you know what? When I, when I get drunk, I lose. I never, I never did drugs because if I got high, I, I lose. And so to me, there's so many <clears throat> ways I could, I could use that story that I can try to teach kids that, hey, you know, all these things, gambling, you know, I, I don't know where the sexual addiction thing, I'm still very, naive and Nancy and I, I need to figure out ways to add that that aspect to my presentations because I have everything else covered you know drugs alcohol gambling suicide all these things but I'm really and I'm, I'm, I'm get I'm I'm um I need to get much better at understanding how to communicate the sexual addiction topic to adolescents without a story I, I don't have a sexual addiction story in my past that people can correlate to but I know people that have uh, maybe not an addiction, but an event. So well, where and I I'm going it's, with... It's, sorry, Go it's ahead. probably easier than you think because you don't have the story, but you can extend your story by saying that like sexual pleasure, sexual addiction, um, it releases the same endorphins, the same rush that you got. As gambling, right. Yeah, or even right. you know, the sugar or whatever people are doing. It's the same endorphins mm. that are, you know, the same neurochemicals, endorphins being one of them, that are triggered that flush the, you know, just totally flood the body, not flesh, flood the body. And you get that euphoric, great feeling. So it's just really an extension of what you already know, um, just to a different, you know, area, but the, the mechanics are really very much the same. Um, mm -hmm. and it's hard, I know, cause it has the word sex, but you know, it's, right. it's 
that's what it is. It's, it's sex, it's addiction, sex addiction. It's addiction to the, you know, the pleasure that comes from, you know, the, the, whatever sexual from sexual acts that cause this flood of neurochemicals, just like everything else. Um, you know, that's, that's really what it is. And, you know, you were talking about tricking your brain. Um, our brains are beautiful, highly evolved, intricate, like amazing machines that are really dumb. <laughs> right. And so it's, it's, it's a tool that you use. Like I, I like, use. You had it's me going there. You had me going there. Right. Well, yeah, it is. It's true. It's all true. Right. I breathe without thinking about it. My everything right. happens the way it happens because of, you know, this neuron is telling this muscle to move. I, I it's beyond, you know, um, comprehension that such a system right. exists and works so seamlessly. However, our brains are little lemmings and they love us. And so they believe everything we tell them. Mm hmm. And that's a tool we can harness and use, right? If you tell to your advantage, absolutely. Right. I, I, when I win, I lose. Your brain's going to believe you. Yep. When you win, you lose. We're not doing that. You know, right. if I tell myself, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm so fat. Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm never going to be, no one loves me. I, gosh, I can't do anything right. You know, your brain's going to go, yep, that's right. Let me collect all that evidence for you. And that's what you'll notice in the world, right? It that's validates everything. Yep. And, I'm supporting um, your narrative. I believe in you. Yes, you're telling me the truth. Let me help you. Let me make yeah. it better. You know, let me show you all the ways that's true. Um, and so one of the reasons I, I say no word is void, and I'm very much about reframing, since our brains believe us. They very much believe us. It's the same. Um, they believe what other people say, too. If you tell a kid they're worthless, you know, uh, enough, they're going to believe they're worthless. It's interesting because... Your belief structure is such an important part of who you are for your identity. Mm -hmm. However, when I look at people, I'm more attracted to how people behave and less what they believe. So mm. as me looking outwards to the world, I want to have a strong belief foundation. But me looking at somebody that's going to, um, you know, impress me in a way to, to motivate and change my life. I follow behavior. I follow the ones that walk the walk, the ones that talk the talk. You're a good example. You're, you're a great example. Sam Gary's a great example. Steve Grant. These are all guests that I've had on that are been through things that um, they've said, hey, I'm, it's not going to define me in a negative way. Sure, it's going to define me, but not in a negative way. And, you know what? and what's funny as you say that is it doesn't for so long. That was on the top of my list. I'm anorexic. I, you know, experienced sexual abuse. Um, and I always thought that would be my identity. And there are long periods of time, not now, cause I'm talking about it all the time, but in my life, mm -hmm. there have been long periods of times where I don't think about it at all. I have called my best friend Raquel and said, Oh my God, I totally forgot I was anorexic. <laughs> and she, she goes, she, cause I read something in a book and she goes, Oh my God, that's right. You are. Oh my gosh. You used to eat the weirdest combinations of food, like broccoli and soy sauce, you know? And we had this conversation, yeah. but I hadn't thought about it in so long because what it's become is a page in my book. Yeah. And I had a therapist say to me someday, this will be a page in your book and you will turn the page and it will not hurt the way it does. You will just be able to gaze upon it was the words that they used. And I thought, Oh bullshit. I'm calling bullshit right here and right now. And quite frankly, it's become a page in my book that I can turn that page and there isn't pain. And I've come to the point where there's actually a little bit of a smile with it because mm -hmm. it's, it's made me who I am. I like who I am. I like my purpose. I like that I'm fulfilling my purpose. Um, and that's, that, makes me smile. 
Well, the last few pages of my book, um, my son wrote a song to his brother called Open Book. And he sings it actually on our, my pod, the very first podcast I ever did. My son Roman sings it at the very end of the hour long episode I had with my two boys, just talking about what we went through. And he wrote it to his brother who died of heroin and it's called Open Book. And it's the concept that we write pages and we write stories and, and, and things come in and it forms chapters. And, and it, it, it is so, uh, for being, you know, when he wrote this, when he was 16, to be thinking that deeply is, um, is encouraging that, that, uh, the kids can deal with, with things as long as they can figure out coping mechanisms. And one thing that I, I want to wrap this up with is I think you have lots of arrows in your quiver to fight what you're going through. And I do as well. And, and, and your story is an arrow in my quiver. And as I continue telling my story and meeting people like you, I have, a, I have a, a, a person I'm interviewing on Friday. Her name's Danielle McLean. I met her on LinkedIn. She talks about her addiction issues. She was a prostitute, all these things. And now she owns an aerospace company. I mean, she's a freaking rock star. And our stories are still involved. That's the reality. I know, I know. But it's like, there's so many of us out there. I feel like I'm part of this cult, but I'm, I'm part of this trauma cult, but I, in a way, in a, as an ADD person, I, 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 I don't know how I can say this, but I look forward to my depressive moments as much as I do my happy moments. Cause I know my depressive moments out of that becomes great things. I told my young son that Roman, I said, you know, Roman, I don't know how to say this without sounding just odd, but I look forward to having my bad moments. I look forward to being on the floor crying because I know out of that something awesome is going to come out of it. So. I'm not as I'm not as brave as you are. I don't look forward. I don't know to if that. that's brave. I'm and, not sure if that's brave. When I'm, when I'm in them, I don't know that I fully appreciate them. I have, I I start to have appreciation, and afterwards, I'm thankful. Um, but you know, if it, it's the same idea. It's the same idea. Mm -hmm. because I know I'm thankful because I know that was a place of growth for me. Um, and that song, yeah, is pretty powerful wisdom from the 16 year old. Um, and I'm going to call it my 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 community. Um, mm -hmm instead of my cult because that's something <laughs> well, only because these are my words and what resonates with me for you it, it, it it's not wrong no i don't call it a cult that's just what my add brain said at the moment oh i say uh, okay yes no i don't i don't you're not part of my cult so <laughs> <laughs> i can't be part of anyone's cult i'm done um with not thinking for myself and blindly accepting what someone tells me so um right. i understand there's comfort in that for a lot of people and there's psychology behind that and and, and that's a whole different conversation, but it's my community. It's, it's my, you know, it's not even my trauma community. It's my, my genuine having lived life to humans community. It's my very, you gotta community. be, you gotta be so excited about the next 10 years of Nancy Barrel's life. I mean, you have to be just, I, I can see big things coming and I, 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 uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about following you on social media and, um, watching your story. And I guess as we wrap up, we're a little over an hour. How, how can people reach Nancy? What's if they're not on LinkedIn and Facebook and all okay. these things, what are some well, um, good ways to reach I do you? Work in schools, it's a little bit hard to find me. So um, my, and I'm going to get this right. I think my Facebook is Nancy Deborah D E B R A. Um, and Instagram is vibing underscore with underscore Nancy. Um, if you don't have LinkedIn, um, I would encourage you to join LinkedIn. You will be um, 
just mm-hmm. pleasantly surprised and rewarded by the people that are there. Um, but you are also welcome to email me. And that is my name, Nancy, N-A-N-C-Y dot D, as in Deborah, dot Barrows at gmail.com. Um, I have four shows that I do a week right now, um, two of which that are streamed on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Um, the first is the Island of Misfit Toys, which is a really fun show where six of us get together. We met at like a week before the show started. And it's just as if you met some friends after work and have a conversation and whatever comes up sort of comes up and we all sort of give our opinion on it and we ask our community and people who are in comments to, to participate in the discussion with us. And that is Thursdays, every Thursday night at 5.30 p.m. Pacific time. And then Connected Human Conversations, I'm a co-host with Mike Paterano and that is also streamed to those same platforms. And that is Sunday evenings at five o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Uh, I am more behind the scenes on Brian Shulman's show. And if you're not connected with Brian Shulman, you guys should go find mm-hmm. him because he is he is he's incredible i don't know that i explain i can explain exactly what he gives um but it's positivity and it's support and encouragement and it's fun it's fun 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 and he does a show on wednesday called what's good what's good wednesday and that's at 11 p.m pacific times and he does shout out saturday on saturdays at 9 a.m pacific times and i really encourage you guys that's only on linkedin unfortunately right now he was another i will be there yeah, be, be there. there. He'll be there. And we have for both of those, this this Wednesday is the 150th episode of What's Good Wednesday. And on mm-hmm. Saturday, it's the 150th episode of Shout Out Saturday. And we are planning a really big celebration for that. Um, awesome. So if you haven't tuned in before, these would be great times to tune in. Um, if you can't make it this week, make it another week. Same with the shows I'm on. They are really about the community that shows up. Um, I mean, last night, Connected Human Conversations, we actually had a guest on that we really worked through and and were able to see the growth from his stuck place to a place of, you know, being able to move forward. So to me, that's so cool. I love seeing it in other people. I love being a part of it. So those are all the different places. And if none of that works, you can send me some smoke signals. I don't, I don't know. Kind of <laughs> well, just, they can always contact me because I'm going to have your contact information yes. uh, probably on the Living on the Turd website. Uh, eventually, we're, we're, as you know, that you could just do this stuff infinitely forever. So I'm trying to balance a lot of things, but I do want to remind people that the living undeterred website is, is uh, productive. It's informational, it's educational, it's inspirational. Um, And people can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. And I'm reminded by Molly to tell everybody to rate us five stars on Spotify and Apple podcasts. I don't have that rehearsed. So I have a little cheat sheet up here on my computer. Um, You know what I just just made me realize I have a YouTube channel. I started it last week. Awesome. Awesome. So you can find me on YouTube, Nancy Barrett. I will. I will. And I'm just, like I said, I'm, I'm, I like the content part of all this, but distributing it is where I suffer the most. So I've got Molly and some other people help me out. But Nancy, I'm going to cut this off with uh, just to tell you, um, I've never done that before. I don't know how to make that heart thing. Yeah, there you, you go. got it. That's it. it. <laughs> I've never done that before. Um, I've seen you guys do it a bunch. But anyway, i just honored to be along with this uh, story that we're on to continue the conversation with people. And at the end of the day, no matter what you're going through, there is there is always somebody out there that you can lean on for help and guidance. And in my world, I like to tell people just live undeterred, uh, never quit, keep fighting, find people like Nancy and Jeff, uh, continue conversing with people and um, 
pain is unavoidable in life, but but suffering is always a choice, and I, I do believe that uh, unequivocally. So again, Nancy, thanks a lot. I appreciate your time with this, and um, I sure our paths will cross many times. Absolutely, I expect live, so. Live undeterred. Thank you. Thank you. 